Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, May 5th, 2022. I'm Jeff O'Neill. Coming to you from bookride.com with Rebecca Shinsky as we do. Rebecca, we're trying a little bit something different today. If listeners of the show know we like to try stuff. That's one of the fun <laughs> formats of the show. For, really from the very beginning, we're like, let's just talk about stuff. Um, whether it's a new story, a link, a development, a rumor, sales pattern, something else like that. And over time, we have been trying to experiment with other formats and what we can do that's interesting to you all. What can we do to help support the show? And today's experiment is a little bit of column A, B, and C. Rebecca, mm-hmm. what, what, what are they going to hear today, both in this feed and in the Patreon? In the second half of this episode, you're going to hear us talk with Florence Williams, the author of Heartbreak, which we have both spoken about glowingly on this podcast, uh, and particularly about the really singular and very cool audiobook version of Heartbreak that includes things like audio diary entries and you know, like recaps, not recaps, little excerpts of live conversations that she had, like with a guy that she was dating or with her best friend and even with her kids at one point as she went through the process of both moving out of and through the divorce of a at the end of a very long marriage and then into dating. And it's just really fascinating. She's also studying the science of heartbreak and like what happens Mm. in our bodies, what happens in our brains. You'll hear us talk with her. Um, This is experimental for the Book Riot podcast (laughs) because as we tell Florence at the top of the interview, as you'll hear Jeff um, when he got to talk with her, we don't really do the author interview thing because it's like very hard for it to be interesting and different from the, you know, the million other interviews an author has given. There's only so many questions you can usually ask about process, but we really wanted to hear from her. So you can hear us uh, have that at the end of the show. And as a extra goody, listeners of this podcast will get a discount on the audiobook of Heartbreak. So info on that will be down there with the excerpt. But our Patreon members will have two weeks of free access to the whole audiobook. Um, so along with experimentation in this show's format, we're trying out some new, cool, different things uh, to do with our Wheelhouse members over on Patreon. They'll also get an extra, it's like 15 or 20 minutes of extra bonus content from that talk with Florence. And if that sounds intriguing to you, and you haven't joined us over there yet, you can do that at patreon.com slash podcast. This is a genuine question. It's not disingenuous for marketing purposes. So any any Patreon level, if you subscribe, yes. you get two weeks mm-hmm. of free act. So mm-hmm. you can go listen to Heartbrook for free. Okay, any level. That's cool. Yeah. Very good. Smart of us to do that. Well done, Rebecca said. <laughs> Why, thank you. Deal. Uh, yeah, you'll hear us talk with Florence. And so from the Patreon episode, we extend the conversation a little bit. And the tease I'll give there is that I make a guess about who to cast if there were a movie version of Heartbreak. <laughs> and it is right And I on. think I was right. And yes. Florence acknowledged it as well. So you can stick around. and had, had a, I took a shot, and I didn't know how it was going to go. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was fun to interview her. And like, like you'll hear us say, 
is we're, we're not really talking about the book Heartbreak itself. We do that a little bit, but it's mostly about how this audiobook came to be. I, I was surprised by some things. Um, and you'll, you'll hear my surprise about how, what the order of operations was, how that thing came together. So I th- we thought it was a good Book Riot podcast-focused interview because it's kind of business, process, technology, new, cool, and worth listening about uh, and, in the uh, world of books and writing. You know, I'm I'm just realizing that folks won't be able to see Florence the way that we saw her when I we know. were recording. You can so Google. if you're yeah, Google, find a little video of her talking and then you can join me in how right Jeff was with his with his casting. Um while we're talking about the wheelhouse, I also want to shout out one of our members, Nick, who after last week's bonus episode, um, where Jeff and I talked about uh, Severance, Slow Horses, mm-hmm. and Pachinko, just a trifecta of wonderful TV happening over on Apple. Nick let us know, I think we were musing about like how good are the Slow Horses books? Would we want to read them after having seen the show, which we both really are enjoying? And he said they are just a phenomenon, the series over in the UK, and that the audiobooks are among the best audio experiences mm. that he's ever had, that they're funny and really well-performed. I think I'm going to be trying that out. Bob and I have a road trip coming up, and this sits like in a very nice shared wheelhouse for us. But we're leading into that season of, good, you know, know, you need a road trip and travel audio material on Slow Horses, which, if you're unfamiliar, is about the group of MI5 spies that like have not they're they're not put all the way out to pasture, but it's like they're in detention uh, for. Yeah doing something bad one of them is just annoying and they're in a building called slough house so they've been called the slow horses um, but they're they're up to stuff they're shenanigans so i'm going to check out those audiobooks and i thought we'd share that tip with our whole listenership here yeah that's a good one i've got a question about a, a tv show we haven't talked about but oh. i'm going to save it for after the break here real quick let's okay. do our first sponsor break today's episode is brought to you by bloom books Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international best-selling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tom and Series, from Chloe Walsh. So Tom and's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsy Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild-at-heart childhood best friend. So The Boys of Tom and Series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon worthy TikTok books, and angsty tear jerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl fighting her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who's moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Abachan died, Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness, 
guys. Um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by my K Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. Have, have, is Julia on HBO Max on your radar at all, Rebecca? Do you know that it's, it exists? Have I you know, seen it? Have you thought about it? I know that it exists. Hmm. I That's as far as, as it's going to go yeah. for me. The I think I just missed the Julia Child's entertainment industrial complex. <laughs> like Julie and Julia wasn't a thing that I read or watched. I loved the, like the concept of Julia Childs and what she contributed to food and cooking, but it's just not, I, I don't know. I, are you here that to convert me? That makes sense to me. I, well, I'm interested. So I guess I'm, I'm a more of a fan of the Julia Child phenomenon than Julia Child herself, just because okay. it's a billion years ago. Like I wasn't watching public television in the mid sixties. I know mm-hmm. I'm old, but you know, I wasn't, <laughs> not that I wasn't, old. I wasn't uh, hanging out in Boston to watch black and white instructionals about how to make, you know, uh, sweetbreads or cockleman or something like that. But I did watch Julia and Julia. And of course I thought the best part of that show, boy, what, what if that was, we don't see that. We thought there was going to be a lot more of a blogs to movies, that's right? Because remember that's mm-hmm. like Amy Adams plays a food blogger who, whose blog goes viral for doing every recipe in the art of French cooking and then interleaved with the story of Julia Child becoming really up to the point where she becomes famous, which Julia, the show on HBO Max does, is the cookbook's done. Right, mm-hmm. she's already been to Cordon Bleu, and it's her trying to get the TV show off the ground. So, couple things to say about it. I would be interested if you were interested. I don't know that it's a home run. I don't. I think the parts I like about it, you also might like about okay. it. So, there's a couple things. One is there is process stuff about how they made public television in the '60s. That's fascinating. <laughs> okay, that like is Julia interesting. Child essentially bankrolled her own pilot episode so that they'd say yes to it. Mm. Um, and they couldn't afford staff, so she just had her friends like be production assistants, and they're like crouching behind the cupboards while she's filming and like handing her the the, the spatula or something like that. So there's there's that element of interesting to it too. I think the lead performance is is really good. It's it is you have to do a Julia Child thing to do it, but Meryl Streep's performance is as much as I love Meryl Streep. There's a version of her that's a little like over the top. Like she's having fun and it becomes about Meryl Streep doing someone rather than Mm -hmm. that performance being the star of the show. I don't know this woman. I'm not even going to say her name because I'll probably mispronounce it and it doesn't even matter. It's almost better that you don't know who she is. Her performance is really good. But the secondary characters, I'm like, it's like David Hyde Pierce. I love David Hyde Pierce. B.B. Newworth. I'm into (laughs) B.B. Newworth. And then so not only that, but the reason that it's like adjacent to the show is it's also connected to some literary publishing stuff mm. because Judith Jones, who is who is Julia Child's editor, was a was John Updike's editor. Okay, and John Updike as a character shows up for an episode, <laughs> and Judith Jones' boss at Knopf was was Blanche Knopf, who was one of the signal literary yeah. agents and editors of the mid twentieth century, played by Judith Light, doing Judith Light things <laughs> as Blanche Knopf, which is incredible. And Gloria Friedman shows up, and Mister Rogers shows up, and all these like luminaries that were sort of around at the time in this milieu show up and i'm not sure it's good but i'm enjoying it (laughs) okay and the production value is fantastic i mean it looks like you're in boston in 1964 and you get some stuff of like you know food tv is so ingrained now that this idea that food tv wouldn't work and all this resistance at the beginning like this is the dumbest thing i've ever heard but no one had done it before and they were inventing camera shots of like how do you show what's going on in the bowl she's stirring because the camera's too big. You can't put it there because it's going to be in her face. Oh, and so they set up these mirrors and stuff. Like, I don't know. I, okay. 
that's I, interesting. I it's worth a couple episodes yeah. to see if you're into it. It sounds it, like I, I would say. maybe something I'll put on, like download a couple before a long flight or something this yes. summer. It's I think it's more that my TV dance card feels very full yeah. right now. Yeah. You know, like Barry just came back. Russian Doll just came back. I just marathoned the final episodes mm-hmm. of Grace and Frankie this weekend. Better Call Saul is doing its final thing. Hacks is about to come back. May 12th. And it's just... Like the the top tier is so full of good stuff that I don't feel like I'm getting into, which is fine with me. The second or third tier of things I might be interested in in TV because mm. there's just so much top level stuff right now. I will note that I was thinking it's a really like that's a really nice piece of publishing historical info that things were once so collected that you could be a cookbook yeah. writer and have the same editor as John Updike. There's an awesome skewering. Um, Because Julia gets her kind of, it's not really a big break, but her first TV appearance is to promote her book on the show called What I'm Reading. And I don't know how much of this is true. I've read some stuff about it. I I did read Julia's memoir up to this moment, like Mm -hmm. how she's in Mm -hmm. France and going to Cordon Bleu. I I really enjoyed that wonderful audiobook experience. I know less about, I know they've taken some liberties, not like winning time liberties. I don't know if you've followed the kerfuffle about winning time on HBO. I don't know it's quite like that, but for example... A production assistant that really gets behind Julia Child at WBGH in the TV show is played and cast by a black woman, and her blackness is at, is a, is part of the show. Mm. But that's not true. I that's see. not what happened. Okay. And I'm not sufficiently interested right now in getting to the pros and cons of that. Um, I think there's an argument to be made that part of the Julia Child story is the the unbearable whiteness mm-hmm. of the whole experience. Mm-hmm. So you inc- you get some quote unquote inclusion by having that person there. But is it whitewashing in reverse to say actually these were these were just all white people? That's just what it was, and own that, and then you have mm-hmm. to make that part of it some other way. And then so I, knowing that that's a big enough of a change, and I think it's in, it's hard is in the right place. I'd be interested to hear um, black media critics talk mm-hmm. about that, especially I haven't seen a piece about it of late. I don't know how much the other true stuff is. I know enough about the relationships. I think the core of it, spiritually accurate, okay. TikTokly accurate. Um, is pretty well. I think it's a good hang. It's not tense, but there's interpersonal stuff. The character work was wonderful. The acting's wonderful. So weirdly, I think it would have been a better fall show. I think we're coming to summer. I think if you were watching this in November, Thanksgiving, Christmas time, oh, you yeah. put it on while you're Sounds cooking cozy. or you're sitting around drinking, you got the covers on. It's a warm hang with a little bit of juice to it, but um, it's pretty good. So vaguely literary. I, I didn't know about the literary stuff at all. I hadn't put it together at all. And I don't, again, I don't know how much this was an excuse to have Judith Life bring the heat and, and be a snob about cookbooks, <laughs> which is both not right, but also I was kind of here to watch that happen at the same time. Wonderful. Um, anyway, that's Julia. I think uh, it's not over yet, but we're six or seven episodes uh, into it. I thought it was it was pretty cool. So there you cool. go. Uh, other follow-up, listener feedback. Um, I had a reader, a listener email about Dunkin' Donuts Book Club. Apparently, Dunkin' Donuts has a book club selection. It is The Great Circle by <laughs> Maggie Shipstead. And this reader, I think, is asking the questions that your laugh is sort of portending, which is, what is like, what is the deal here? Like, why, <laughs> like, why do this? Are all of the titles going to be obliquely referring to the shape of donuts? I, my... I, I really, that old ace in the hole by Annie Prue would be another good one. Um, but I, I don't know. 
I don't think the Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead is what I've necessarily picked out for, picked out for the Dunkin' Donuts book club, no. and it's not necessarily about the the, the double deers over there themselves. It's like that's a seven hundred seven hundred page historical yeah. fiction uh, novel. That's... So I'm not really sure what to say about this. I, in terms of the like what and why and how do these things work, I wish we had those answers. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Of like, why did Dunkin' Donuts have a book club? How did they pick the Great Circle? Did money change hands, or is I would bet? It's and who probably, paid who? Yeah, I would guess this is probably like corporate co-branding, if anything. That of like, we yeah. will put the Great Circle in stores, and you will talk about Dunkin' Donuts. This is this looks to me like a publicity move rather than paid marketing placement. Although, like, props to whoever thought of making it the Great Circle. That is really funny um when i worked at starbucks which was like 11 or 12 years ago it was pre-book riot Mm -hmm. they were doing a starbucks book club at the time that overlapped with a period in which howard schultz both at the time was the he was on again in the on again off again runs of his (laughs) life as the ceo of starbucks (laughs) but like he was on and he had a memoir out at the time and i remember that we had like a little kiosk in the store where you could pick up if you for some reason wanted with your latte a story from the ceo of starbucks you could buy the hardcover there and i feel like Maybe there were a few other books that got featured in that book club that you could have purchased in the store over time. Half a Yellow Sun, I remember, <sighs> was up front at one point. Okay. Um, because I didn't remember the music because the Bublé's and Josh Groban's of the world, Yes, it's not my, that's not my bag, and they seem to move a lot of units there. But when it was a book, I was like, well, that's interesting um, to put on and it, there. And I don't know what the deal would be with that. I yeah, guess... It was, I don't remember selling... <sighs> very many i like right. i if my idiosyncratic experience was any indicator they were not moving units in a meaningful way although i guess there are so many starbucks locations that even if you sell like two copies in the month that it's the featured title that's a right. not insignificant number of books but it's it, like it's no tiktok <laughs> I mean, the publisher has to be paying the retailer. What's in it for Dunkin' Donuts? Do they get sort of prestige by this book that, to a first approximation, well, 0% of their Walker Inners will have heard about? Well, can you buy The Great Circle in Dunkin' Donuts? Or is it just like a, this is I think you can buy it month. there. That's my oh, understanding. I could be okay. wrong about this. I think there's a stack of four copies mm. of The Great Circle, which is now seven feet high because oh it's, it's a hideously long word. It's... And it's hardcover. I mean, it can't be just an affiliate thing where they're getting co-op for it because it can't, it can't be worth enough for... Dunkin' Donuts to do that. On the other hand, I have said um, in this show and other places, I think more books, excuse me, more coffee shops should carry a limited selection of books. Yes. I absolutely think that's true. But not 700 page epic novels, which I loved. Right. (laughs) But like, no, no no shouts. Yeah. The the Starbuckses of the world, Dunkin' Donuts, like that's, this is the place where you put like your new Malcolm Gladwell. It's the place where you drop a Michael Lewis. It's the place where you put in like a nice, short, funny memoir. Like you gotta, you want a little variety and it needs to be, it's got to go down easy. And like a 700 page novel is first of all, a terrible thing to impose on any book club, no matter how good the book is. (laughs) Nobody's coming to your house on that Wednesday night. having actually finished that thing. I made it through like, it's like the great arc at that point. You made it through like... 40% 40% of the uh, the radius there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I, I have questions. You know, I wonder, that, I think that's an interesting, maybe a party game for a future episode where we 
match make coffee chain brands to the book <laughs> they should pick. I will make a note of this for <laughs> our brainstorming document. But I, you know, the the local highbrow chain. I think that you're not going to work with individual independent coffee shops. There's just too many. Yeah. But there are certain chains. Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, those are obvious ones. But here in Portland, for example, and I think it's other places too, Stumptown is the mm-hmm. fancy coffee place. And Sally Rooney. That's I, you're you're on it, right? You such a fun age, you know mm-hmm. those kinds of things, which are cross literary fiction, commercial cross. I think Great Circle is too literary for this. For, yes. for Dunkin' Donuts, I'm not picking. I'm going down down market. And again, please don't email me. This is not about snobbery. This is just terms of art. You're going more towards the center. Of mm-hmm. commercial fiction, and that could be any number of things. That's crawdads. That's crawd. That's what crawdads is made to do. That's what has caught this. Dunkin' Donuts are in suburbs, and that's a different kind of reader. Maybe now you put the book talk stuff out there. Get in the people's way that they're. Uh, we're going to talk about book talk here in a second, um, and some interesting preliminary audience survey data that I don't want to say now because it will then, if you haven't taken the survey yet, uh, it might influence it. But let's just people have heard of these books. Uh, in a way that, you know, get in their way, make it easier for them to buy it. Uh, I certainly, when I go buy my coffee, I'd be interested to see, you don't have to become a bookstore, but pick five, ten. That's almost a better, more interesting Mm -hmm. service to do there. But right now, I mean, nothing's really selling well enough. I'm I'm just looking at the front list of things that are selling. Maybe the Lincoln Highway, Dunkin' Donuts. You get moms and dads Mm -hmm. a little bit there. It's also very long, though. It's, oh, it's I didn't deal. realize that was super long. It's like 500 pages um, in that regard. You can look at what's paper, what's selling in paperback. I, I mean, the seven and a half, you know, the, the Taylor Jenkins Reads debut novel. I think that this is the, the, the first thing about the coffee shop book club is that unless it's the stump town, like blue bottle yep. snobby level, they got to be go. paperbacks. It has to be paperbacks. Oh, so great point. You got to go. It's like we're talking to Evelyn Hugo is happening there. Yep. That's right. That's right. You could do, I mean, Circe, you could do the Madeline Madeline Mm -hmm. Miller duology of Circe and Song of Achilles. I think that's maybe, that'd be a wonderful one there too. So long story short, interesting. I don't know. We don't have any, the long story is we don't know. And we're as interested in you are. What dollars, what the flow of dollar was, it has to be to publisher to the Dunkin' Donuts. I don't think Dunkin' Donuts gets anything out of having the Great Circle just sitting there. Um, intimidating people into not buying it. Um, I I just don't know why. How much? Do you know what the imprint is? It Riverhead. That's a great circle. It feels like oh a no. Title. Uh, let me. It doesn't matter. It's something like that. Okay, it's yeah. Scribner Riverhead. You know what I'm talking about here. I don't know. How, and maybe it's just only pilot locations. Um, I can't imagine that it's in the suburban Wichita Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> maybe in the Boston, New York. You know, which Washington D.C. is at select markets. What kind of demographic info does Dunkin' Donuts provide a publisher? Mm. Maybe that is the right pick for that thing. I, I, I don't know. Maybe there's a different book in um, I, Salt Lake so City. Many questions. I, I don't. Maybe it would be different. Maybe another. I'm trying to pick something different. But I, I'd love to know if we have any little birdies out there. Um, I'd sure love yeah. to know the bespoke de- details. Great Circle was Knopf, so the paperback is coming out from Vintage. For vintage, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. Knopf, right? Uh, speaking of Blanche, uh, Knopf herself, yeah, uh, is hugely that's, influential, and in, you know, in the, Knopf the brows are high over there. Yeah, that's very that is true. <laughs> uh, let's do our well. Let's see, we'll do a break between the end of our discussion before Florence. So that takes us right into our continued efforts to not embarrass ourselves talking about book talk. But this time, we don't have to talk like we're fluent in the language of book talk, which we're not. 
we can look at numbers. Which we love. Which we love. And there, this was in Publishers Lunch by way of uh, NPD, which owns BookScan. And there's several assumptions here I'm not sure about. And we can maybe interrogate those at the end a little bit. But taking them at their word, what NPD has done is tried to look at what is, how much and what is the shape of book talk sales? Is it replacing? Are these, are these sales that would have happened for different titles and the same number of units would have been sold? Or is it additive or what exactly is, what, what exactly is happening <laughs> and how much? Um, I will say this. We don't want to name names. And these are the kind of conversations where people don't know. Not, their expectation is not that they're going to be talked about publicly. But um, Rebecca, I was telling Michelle yesterday that everyone in publishing is talking about TikTok and everyone is yes, doing a shrugery emoji, but mm -hmm. we've got to think about this a little bit. And everyone is trying to figure this out. There is no Yoda somewhere that knows what they're doing about this at this point. Nope. I, I, is that fair? Is That's that, absolutely is that a fair. Yeah. Yes. So I think for us and everyone else saying these numbers, I thought these were fantastically interesting. And it's very rare that I cut and paste a whole document, including <laughs> images into our agenda. But I did that. So we have them here. The top line here is S, uh, um, yes, they are additive. And B, that you're seeing the same books is showing up in sales mm -hmm. in a way that's pretty startling. I think the number, so that's the top line, right? And that in the terms of total adult fiction, 73% of 2022's growth year to date over 2021 was a, NBT BookScan is attributing to book talk popular authors as opposed to 12% in 2021. So it's a factor of five Five, mm -hmm. six, mm -hmm. six, closer to six X year over year in terms of book talks influence on authors. And I, when I'm using Colleen Hoover example, it's not a joke, Rebecca. It's I not mean, I at think all. That it's, it's not a joke. Why don't we walk, walk, what's your takeaway from the actual names that we see here in the scale? Yeah. So Colleen Hoover, according to BookScan, accounts by herself for 14% of the 2022 growth in over in fiction sales um I followed... think that's, that's growth that's total i think that's total sales short oh, of book talk okay. sales. oh yes I you're right you're right sales. Yes, sorry I, I, yes. it's it matters just enough to yeah no no you're right you're, that. it's the share of sales um yeah. and that share of there's also a look at share of growth but not yes, by the particular authors confusing. yeah so colleen hoover accounts for 14 percent of the book sales that they can attribute to mm -hmm. book talk that is the highest and it's it's double the next highest, yes. which is Lee Bardugo, accounts for about 7%, followed by Madeline Miller, Emily Henry, and our favorite debut novelist, Taylor <laughs> Jenkins Reid. Uh -huh. Are we ever going to get tired of that? I'm not sure. I'm not. Um, I don't care. I, you know. there, and each of those accounts for 4%. So those top five authors are bringing in more than 30% yep. of all the book sales attributable to book talk. And... That is fascinating. <laughs> and the top ten percent, the top ten authors. I did this isn't in there, but I did the math myself. Account okay. for forty three percent of book talk sales. So it's super top heavy. It is. Um, and the top is even especially top heavy. Anthony Dora they have on here, and so this I, I, that's not something in my very light wading into the book talk waters. I don't see that. I don't mm -hmm. see his book on there. I, I believe them, but that does get me to think about how are they how are they attributing this to book talk, and they're looking at. The top 90 author, authors in terms of activity, reach, they're trying to do some very handmade 
things here. So yes. they could be wrong. They're doing what's possible. Um, to my knowledge, they certainly didn't, don't mention here that TikTok does not have some API you can plug into and suck a bunch of data out. <laughs> the reason people don't know things is this kind of data yeah, is very hard to it, do, is what it, I'm saying. It is really hard to do. And, you know, we've heard directly from publishers and then it's echoed in, the, I will drop a link into the show notes that NPD has a short, like 15 minute podcast episode yeah. where you can listen to one of their head analysts talk about this. But they have said, you know, if we see a surge in sales for a backlist title, yes, especially, right. and we can't figure out where those sales are coming from, now we have learned it's got to be that something is happening with mm -hmm. that book on Book Talk. And one of the biggest questions that the NPD folks raise, which is also something that, that we've been talking about and that we've been hearing a lot about, is like, will the publishing marketing machine be able to co opt this? magic. And so far, they have not been able to beca precisely because analytics for TikTok are very, you know, opaque and hard to yes. come by, which means it's very hard to figure out really how to game the system, um, how to mm -hmm. market your way and manufacture your way into the kind of phenomenon um, that is happening organically here. But it's a this is a big it, this is a big phenomenon. It's and you a can, huge phenomenon. And you've been using phenomenon. the analogy. I can't I can't remember now if you've talked about it on the show or if this was just mm. in other calls of a lottery ticket of like everybody seems to have the sense that it's really unlikely that this is going to happen for any of your titles. Yes. But you've got to try because that's your ticket and you can't win if you don't play. And if you do win, you could be Colleen Hoover accounting for 14 percent of all the sales. 3.2 million copies in 2021. <laughs> it's just it's bonkers. It's just bonkers. bonkers. How long it, it this really lasts? It really is bonkers. Yeah, everyone is shruggy emoji about like how long this will last in general. I think there's some recognition that it relies deeply upon the fact that the algorithm isn't gated at TikTok. There's no mm -hmm. like the algorithm's feeding you stuff and detecting what you want to see, but it's not. It, it's still early in its technology days. It hasn't had the kind of evolution that we've seen on Facebook and Instagram where, and Twitter, where we'll show you certain kinds of things because now we're also trying to show you ads and sell you stuff. And um, that advertising is, you know, a very small part of what's happening on TikTok currently. But fascinating to see some numbers and. I want more methodology in this piece because <laughs> yeah, I want to yeah. know how they can attribute, like in, if anybody has the data, it's NPD, but how can you attribute that 73% of this growth is due to these top 90 authors on BookTok? Is it just that all the other variables in publishing have been relatively constant like in the last year? Is it, what is it that, that lets you say of all this growth that we've seen this year, it has to be coming from? TikTok, well, I, I think there's a bit of, it's not sleight of hand, but they're making a a logical jump of transferring that they're attributing all sales to these book talk authors to book yes. talk authors. Mm -hmm. They're not saying they go to book. They're not because of book talk, but because of book talk, uh, popular, influential, talked about known mm -hmm. authors. So what percent of the 3.2 million sales of Colleen Hoover's books last year directly happened because of book talk they're not trying to make an implied yeah, think, argument about that and, and that's why that's... i'm looking at like lee bardugo mm -hmm. well shadow and bone came out at the end of 2020 people have been picking that yep. up mm -hmm. so maybe there's some there the madeline miller one that's that one seems easy to me like that's all over the place and there's not a lot of i mean yeah circe is a couple years a few years old now um yeah, schwab seems... is popular she's got new books coming out 
Alex Michaelides, that book has been popular since before yeah, TikTok, I... The Silent Patient. So I think some of these, you can't attribute all of them, but I think the general schema is right, is that this is as top-heavy, if not more mm-hmm. so, than it seems. Yeah, I think that's right. And even just in those top five, beyond Hoover, Bardugo, and Miller, you know, Emily Henry, just super popular, well-marketed yeah. everywhere. And we know that Taylor Jenkins Reid is also popular and well-marketed. Right. Um, so how much of it is actually the being on BookTok and how much of it is that you ha- are popular and you're on BookTok? Um, I mm-hmm. think that's the kind of, that's the Venn diagram that's working. Um, and the size of just general popularity influence versus the impact that BookTok has had. You probably can't argue that BookTok is responsible for a lot of those Colleen Hoover sales um, for a... a not self-published, but an Amazon-published author. This is like the biggest success I think I've yeah. seen of somebody who has some books published by Amazon, and it's not because Amazon like, you know, marketed the crap out of them and spent a jillion advertising bucks, but she hit the lottery with BookTok. And that, and the backlist element too of it is the remarkable mm-hmm. thing is yeah. generally you don't have a backlist title um, independent of some adaptation, right? not only to pick up sales, but become a, a word of mouth viral phenomenon. And when we mean viral, we mean it happens person to person. Mm-hmm. And one thing I've said on this show, and I've said in marketing meetings too, that I, we saw some heads nod is there's a world in which this is what word of mouth looks like if you can look at word of mouth yeah. on steroids, right? So if the Da Vinci Code came out today, would it go crazy on TikTok and sell a bunch of copies? Maybe, maybe not. Without TikTok, does Colleen Hoover go crazy? Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. I think that's what's interesting to, to me here. Like The biggest publishing phenomenon of our lifetime at this point in terms of a single title was Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. And it's not even going to be close. Something really wild would have to happen. And I'm putting Harry Potter in there, the boy who shall, the, the author who shall not be named. As, as a whole cultural franchise, that's a bigger deal. Yeah. But as a single title, Fifty Shades of Grey, when it came out, in paperback, erotica, BDSM, viral stuff, never had seen anything like it mm-hmm. a- anywhere before. And we just weren't seeing where that was happening. You used the example of people reading it in the salon, yep. right? Seeing it out in the wild. That's as close as you ever really get to word of mouth being visible out in the public world. So Book Talk not only has this huge algorithm, is huge, like billions and billions and billions of views a day. So you're seeing a lot more, but it's not just, you can't argue, I don't think, that it's just showing you what would be happening anyway. It is catalyzing and putting fuel on the fire in its own way. How long it lasts, we don't know. Um, I think the other thing to notice here is they don't, I didn't look, I didn't see if there's the full list of the 90 book talk names that they're using as their sample set. But of these top 10, there are nine white people. Mm-hmm. And Adam Silvera is the lone, um, Puerto, the lone person of color. He's Puerto Rican-American. And we've talked about that before, is another thing that unchecked or even goosed algorithms do if they're searching for popularity, if they're searching for the things when they, that people want to watch, is they will exaggerate, enhance, create, and reify existing biases and predilections. And I think it's hard to look at this and not mention race. Oh, of course. Uh, not mentioned here, unfortunately. I wish yep. NPD and Publishers Lunch would have noticed this. Mm-hmm. Um, gender is interesting. We have got one, two, three, four dudes and six women. Um, but this is a, at least of these top 10, and I don't know enough about the, maybe the mid-tier of Book Talk authors is different composition. I kind of would be surprised to see if it's meaningfully different. Um, but this is 
you let algorithms go mm-hmm. and you're not solving for anything, you're going to get at the top 10 most popular books on a list being all white people. Like that, yeah, you just, I mean, we saw it with PBS. Like it's right, just going to happen. It's, it's exactly the same as PBS or even the New York Times asking people yeah. about their favorite books. Yeah. So anything else here that's, I, I think we hit the big moments. The, the rest of the piece I left in about particular markets, geographical markets being up or down. Mm. I think that's just a COVID story. So these big metropolitan areas, Boston, New York, San Francisco, in terms of the books that get sold, book markets by volume, those are down five, you know, between 1% and 7%, Boston being the, the least performant. And then the, I guess, the Sun Belt states, Southern states, Florida, Texas, Nebraska coming through, Lincoln and Omaha up hmm. 5%. Um, I, I don't think of Lincoln, Nebraska as a big enough market to include on a list like that. It's yeah, like saying Lawrence, Kansas being right. on. The, so they're just showing straight percentage. So I guess there's been some boom uh, in central Nebraska. Um, go Huskers. Uh, yeah, Florida, 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 Texas. <laughs> sort of the story <laughs> on where people, not a surprise. I, I would guess year over year, you get some regression to the mean mm-hmm. here, but kind of interesting as well. All right. So I think, are we ready for to, to, to move into Florence? Here? I think so. Is that what we should do? Yeah, yeah. So before we move into Florence, just let me remind y'all, hang around after the interview or ha- yeah, hang around after this. Listen to us talk with Florence and then you can get a copy of Heartbreak directly from Pushkin on audio going to pushkin.fm slash heartbreak. Use the code riot20 at checkout for 20% off and Patreon members watch your feeds Let's see. You get the show on Fridays. So watch yes. this. Watch your feed on Tuesday um, for the bonus episode and a link to the whole audiobook available to you. If you're like me, you would have a question, maybe a Dunkin' Donuts Great Circle question. This isn't a paid spot. This is not a paid spot. We, no. We were trying to figure out something we could do together to get behind the book, offer listeners something, tick a couple of boxes. So if you're wondering how much did we get paid for this, the answer is $0 to yeah. get paid to, to have Heartbreak <laughs> do any of this stuff. I'm trying to yeah. offer some value and get behind a book we really like and ask some questions to make good, some good stuff. So in case you're wondering, that's the deal. There is no deal. Yeah, and let us know how you like this. Since yeah. The whole author interview and check out an audiobook thing is a little bit different from what we normally do. I enjoyed the interview. I think Rebecca enjoyed the interview too. I was very excited. I was very jumpy and excitable, which you'll hear. And we said after we did the interviews, like, I forget how fun it can be to do author interviews. This reminds me of the old Reading Lives days or doing interviews for Annotated. But I don't think about it often enough to keep my antenna open for what would be good fits for our show. Mm-hmm. So if you've got an idea, we're like, we could do more of these, but. It doesn't really work for even books that we really like. I'm trying to think of a good example. Like, even if we had Kylie Reed to talk about Such a Fun Age, it would be more of a standard author interview. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, but you can get that other places. But if there's certain kinds of interviews with authors or people in the biz that occurs to you after hearing what we do with Florence, for good or for ill, maybe please don't do this again, you dummy. That's also (laughs) hurtful, but useful feedback if that's a thing. I, I want to keep my antenna open up a, a little bit to see. Maybe this is the exception that proves the rule. That's always a possibility. Yeah, but at I least consider that, that there's possible. other ideas. And, you know, I was thinking, I wish that I had, like, saved the video or done some screenshots. Because we did some divide and conquer. So you'll hear Jeff did the, like, mouth words interview part yes. with Florence. And I was running the tech side. But we were all in video together. And I was, so, like, we could see each other's faces. So I was watching them talk and, like, making big Muppet faces <laughs> in reaction yes. to things. Yes. Or like, yes, I am very, I move around, on video, I'm, I move, I take my glasses on and off uh-huh, and put my hand yeah. on my face. I'm yes. back and forward. I'm all over the place. The idea of like this, in, this podcast being on video every week is horrifying to me for just the amount of like gesturing and messing with my hair. 
Yeah, that's that's not yeah. acceptable. Uh, no. The video is not. Um, please don't ask for the video. No, not that's not it. happening. <laughs> I mean, we did video the Lonesome Dove read along. I guess oh, we could yes. use the video for the, that. That's our to. top tier Patreon membership at ten thousand dollars per month. Ten thousand dollars per month. Yeah, <laughs> it, and it's uh, it's an, it, ongoing. It, it'll be <laughs> right. No it's never ending. It. It's just yeah. Lonesome Dove forever. Anyway, pushkin.fm slash heartbreak code riot 20 for 20 percent off yeah stick around quick sponsor break and then we get get right into florence rebecca we'll talk to you we're a little out of joint so i'm not sure the next time you'll hear us talk and when we will have said those words but you and i will be talking at various points into the future today's episode is brought to you by underlined haven't read a natasha preston thriller yet we dare you to try she's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like the seller and the fear the new york times and usa today best-selling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers so her newest book titled the dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very very wrong this is a perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare the dare is now available wherever books are sold you can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Florence Williams, you've heard us talk about Heartbreak. Um, her book that came out in February that's about heartbreak and her own experience of um, being divorced and then sallying forth into the world to try to see what could be done about it, I guess, uh, and how to get better and how to get fixed and how to come to terms with the new state of being. Florence, thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. I, I was telling Florence before that we don't do author interviews. It's not part of what we normally do. And Rebecca and I have been like, should we ask? What will she do it? What would we say? Because we love the book so much. And I can talk a little bit why I'd ask Florence questions about that. But the process stuff was what really got us interested to maybe there's something else we could do that other people wouldn't and or think about in a way that you can't hear. You've done a lot of interviews about this. They're really good. I can recommend. Did with Harvard Bookstore. Uh, was it Politics and Prose? You've done several. So yes. they're all awesome, wonderful hour-long interviews that are more like the regular kind of author. You're going to get. I'll put the link there. I, I cheated off some of their questions. I'm picking some stuff up <laughs> there. So I'll do that in a second. But I guess the thing that really got Rebecca and I wheel turning is like we had genuine questions we wanted to ask sort of as fans of the book, but also as observers of the publishing industry. And really for us, 
we started texting furiously together on the audiobook side. And I think for me, I didn't read the print version, obviously. I said it that way. Um, on the show, we've talked about in some kinds of books are better in different formats. To me, it's hard to imagine the print experience doing what the audio can do. So my first thought, and there's going to be an excerpt at the end for those of you listening that where Florence talks a little bit about the audiobook and what you're going to hear and then the opening chapters. And I think right away, you're going to hear this is a different kind of audiobook. And so much of that is made possible by you recording stuff. Yes. At what point did you know this was going to be a thing? And was a book the thing, a print book? Or like, where? how did this come to be a thing where you then started collecting things that were going to be the thing? Like, how, how did you start <laughs> picking the berries and putting them in the basket? And did you know what kind of pie you were going to make out of it? Yeah, thank you. Those are all great questions. Sorry, I just got a cling there. That's, that's yes. Awesome. Thank you so much. And, you know, honestly, Jeff, just thanks for having me on to talk about this because I am stoked about the audiobook. I'm really proud should, of it. it should be. Yes, great. I think we made something really original and different. And, um, you know, I was kind of riveted by the process. Um, and I, I'm just really happy to be here to talk about it. Great. So, um, this was my third book. And with the first two books, uh, I ended up making podcast press products um, that followed the book. Mm -hmm. And um, in those cases, they were both audible originals. And I worked with a really brilliant producer. I hadn't done a lot of audio before. We actually went back to the field and um, kind of re re reported fresh a lot of the subjects in the books um, to sort of make these new products that were related to those books. So we did one about the breast book and we did one um, called the three day effect, mm -hmm. uh, which was about what happens to your brain and your body after three days in nature. It was based on my book, the nature fix, but we had to like go back into the field and, and re-record. And so with this book from the get-go, I just carried around my task cam and I just recorded everything at the time I was actually making, still making the three day effect. And um, I was interviewing all these people who'd gone through, you know, sort of tough life experiences and were being helped in nature. And in the middle of this process, my marriage exploded. And my producer and the executive producer at some point convinced me, you know, that I should look at my own situation and was three days in nature going to help me with heartbreak. And so I was already sort of asking people about heartbreak and getting used to sort of just saying to people, I have heartbreak. Is this, is, is nature going to help me? Um, and then at some point I also, again, with the encouragement of my brilliant producer, Mary Beth Kirshner, dear friend, you know, she said, record some audio journals, you know, be in the moment, record as you go. It's not just about the experts. It's about mm. your therapist. It's about your boyfriends. It's about your best yeah. friend. You know, what happened when you woke up under the table in the warehouse at five in the morning, you know, um, and I didn't know, I honestly didn't know I was writing a book. I didn't know that I would make an enhanced audio book. I just thought I'm going to collect tape. I'm a journalist. Mm -hmm. This is what I do. I'm just going to get, I'm just going to document everything on tape. Yeah. And then, and then even after I turned the book in, I still didn't know what to do with the tape. I thought maybe I'll just so make it. Print, it was text first text. You turned, turned the book in. It was all the about the, yeah, I had a contract for the book. It was all about the print book. I put a lot, you know, a ton of effort and time and energy into that. But after that process, I was left with 150 or so audio files and I was really unsure about what to do with them. 
you know, the obvious thing would be to make another podcast. Run that process back again. Yeah, exactly. But I kind of felt like I've already done that. I've already sort of told the story and I don't necessarily want to make a podcast about the same story again, Mm -hmm. because I didn't feel like it would be different enough. And then what I really thought from the beginning was this would be a really cool enhanced audiobook. But I didn't totally know if anyone was doing that or what that meant. It just, but it just felt like the the material cried out for enhancing the actual book. And I, I in want fact, to say I, why? Can you say why it cried out? Because I want to say why I thought it cried out. But what did you hear and see and feel in it that cried out audiobook or or somehow an enhanced experience? Was there a moment? Was there a clip? I mean, what would, what were you feeling sad that you weren't going to get to put out in the world in its raw form? Well, I was attached to some of the tape around conversations with my dearest friend, Lisa. Everyone loves Lisa, who read, read the book, and everyone loves Lisa, who listens to the audiobook. You know, she's smart, she's savvy. Um, there was just a rawness, yeah. right, to the quality of those conversations. There was a rawness to, and an authenticity, I think, to the conversations with my therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had this tape of one of the sort of crazy guys I dated, um, and I had his permission to use the tape, um, but I'd already told the story in the book. Yeah. So it just seemed like the, the audio wanted to support the book rather than being something else. And I actually, I, I remember I had this moment after I turned the book in where I woke up at like three in the morning and I was like, God damn it. This wants to be an enhanced audiobook. It just does. But nobody understood how to make that. My, mm-hmm. I felt like my agent didn't, you know, my publisher didn't, um, they had already tried to sell audiobook rights, you know, to Pushkin, which was like the one place I knew that was doing enhanced audiobooks. Pushkin turned it down because they thought, well, you know, we haven't been working with this writer. She doesn't have any tape. And so that, that was their word for a couple of months. And finally, I, I, I texted my agent. And I was like, whatever happened with the Pushkin offer? And they said, oh, yeah, they don't think you have enough tape. And I said, wait, no, no, I have 150 files. No, I have tons of tape. So then I had to sort of rewind that whole pitch process and interject myself into it. <laughs> wow. Okay. Cause now we're going to Rebecca, I'll tell the story that Rebecca and I thought that maybe it was audiobook first. I, I mean, the P- Pushkin's absolutely the right place to go. No one's doing what they do. I think frankly, again, no, I don't know. We can talk more about how much work went into it. Like once you had the idea and like the agreement, like what all that looked like. And there's so many books that it's impossible for everyone, but it's, a radically different experience. I mean, the, the intimacy and some of it is the personal stuff. Like you, when you have audio of someone that's close to the writer crying, you have to put that, like you have to put that in audio. Like you have to do it. Like we get choked up listening to people just narrating them getting choked up. Like it's just a completely <laughs> different experience. And like some of it is that it's relatable, right? Which your friends or intimate family members who are having the girl talk or the brother talk or the, you know, the kind of that kind of talk we're used to, it feels like they've got a Cosmo in their hand and you're, you know, talking over a bar. Like you can hear and feel that in a way that print just can't capture. Print is wonderful. It does many things well, but if you have that, you know, translating that into text, you know, there's so much data, so much stuff is getting lost in the process. So then Pushkin says, you're like, oh, wait a minute. If it's tape you need, you've got tape. 
Right. And so do they, do you, do you then take the book as the script? Like, I don't even know how different the book is from the audiobooks. Like, are the words the same or how, is there any change at all? Oh yeah. I mean, so that's interesting. You said, you know, you thought maybe it started as an audiobook, yeah. and that's normally how Pushkin does it. So, you know, they'll work with an author from the get-go to give them the tape recorders and produce the tape mm -hmm. and tell them where to get tape. And I, I did it a little bit backwards. I mean, I collected the tape on my own and then I, I threw it all, you know, in front of them after the book, you know, was already yeah, written. Right. Um, so, so it involved, um, well, first I had to convince them that I had decent tape. So okay. I had to combine, I had to compile, um, I compiled sort of a, um, like a select, you know, like a, um, sort of a dazzle reel of audio selects. Um, I put everything into script, which is this kind of software. I use it. Yeah. I know it. Yes. Awesome. So it, you know, it provides a transcript and you can actually listen kind of in real time when you're reading it. So I made this big selects tape and, um, and, and they, you know, they, to their credit, they were willing to, to go for this. And we had a really tight time frame because we'd already lost months on, you know, the first time they said, no. <laughs> um, and, and then, yes. So it has to be rewritten because you have to write in and out of the tape. Yes. Um, you have to be able to say, for example, um, why the, why the audio tape with my therapist is so bad. Right. And it's mm. because she was in a car. And so I have to say, Oh, I caught her in her car, you know, so that the listener will sort of understand I why. The tape see, is so I, bad. I don't think you need that anymore, but that's an interesting note that they gave you. I think most, anyway, I, I'm curious. Yeah. About I mean, it, it, it depends, but you know, yeah, the, yeah. it's just slightly different the way you, and, and also the tape doesn't cut the way it cuts when you're writing it in print. Right. So, you know, the sentence that you had in print may just cut really badly or sound terrible on the tape, or that you may be able to, like, maybe you rustled your paper or something. So you have to use a slightly different clip. So, right. um, and then what was really cool is that I had this opportunity to bring in sort of bonus content. Um, so I had these conversations that I thought were so intimate and great on tape. Um, you know, that just didn't make it into the actual print mm, book. Mm. So then, of course, we had to convince my publisher, Norton, my print publisher, to let us change the book. And so everything had to go through legal again. Everything had to be vetted. I had to get permissions. Um, so so it, it was a little bit of reverse engineering. Yeah, that actually makes a ton of sense. That's the only, if the audio wasn't first, that's the only way I can imagine doing it. Because yeah. I know from the little bit we've done, from a, a produced audio book like experience, the 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 best sentence in prose they may cut off midstream or mid sentence, and then it goes and it sounds bad, and you've got to use something else. That makes a ton of sense. I, I wrote down Dazzle Reel. So you sent Dazzle Reel to Pushkin. What what was on the Dazzle Reel? I'm trying to get people to read, to listen to the book without giving it away. It's a it's a hard line. So what are the Dazzle Reels that they could would look forward to in listening to the audiobook? What do you do to wow Pushkin and say? Yeah, so the Dazzle Reel, um, there was a little bit of conversation of me with my best friend, Lisa, in which she says something like, um, you know, you have no experience with men. You know, you just, you're going to have to just go for it. You're 50 years old and you like, you've never been naked in front of everyone. You know, <laughs> There was like that. And then there was a conversation with my therapist and then, you know, snippet, yeah. snippet of a conversation, um, you know, with, with um, boyfriend number one. Um, there was, um, oh, some scientists, you know, I mean, yeah. obviously, the, the, you know, there's a lot of science in the book and I have some great tape from scientists comparing um, lonely people to mice. 
for example, yeah. who are isolated in a cage, you know, for three yeah. days and, and they go crazy after being isolated for three days. Um, uh, you know, there were some vole, interesting prairie voles. Research. <laughs> these poor prairie voles are like divorced in a lab where these mated prairie voles are separated and they freak out when they're divorced. It's not just humans who get heartbroken. No. Voles get heartbroken too. And so I think, I think it was really enticing and mm -hmm. fun, you know. Um, and then, of course, I think Pushkin was also able to imagine, because they have so many brilliant, really brilliant producers and sound engineers and even composers, they were able to kind of imagine how they might sound engineer um, some of this tape. Yeah, and for so example, I, I have this, just, just to tell you something I'm really excited about, which is we have a chapter when I take psychedelics. <laughs> and, um, you know, a, a composer at Pushkin actually, you know, created this really kind of psychedelic, um, you know, soundscape for that chapter. So they are, they are just able to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, you have to know what you're doing and then commit the resources to it because there's virtual, there's various ways of producing the audiobooks. I just went to see if you had narrated an audiobook before, your earlier ones. It looks like it was a standard deal where the audio yeah, was sold and you didn't have it. I didn't listen to, and I was wondering, I was going to ask about the Audible original piece because that's a super fascinating kind of like subsidiary, right? Thing. So you had some experience doing it. It sounds because you're a really good narrator, but without being super performant, like how much coaching did they give you on? Because it sounds like there was even particular line reads maybe that had a particular thing you were going for. Were they giving you notes? Like you're in the booth. What are they telling you? What are you hearing? What are you trying to do? Yeah, I will tell you the read was the hardest part for me. Um, you know, fortunately, I had I had done these two Audible originals, and and for those, I actually got voice coaching. Okay. Audible hired you know a voice coach for me to help me you know eliminate fry, <laughs> and sound more conversational. Um, but I it, it I tend to be a little bit stiffer, I think, um, and especially when I'm reading such personal, I'm reliving right the trauma <laughs> over and over again this but you know it's hard enough to write a heartbreak book but then when you have to read it again and sometimes you know my chest would just tighten up and um fortunately you know my my producer at pushkin really was great and you know kind of held my hand through zoom because <laughs> <laughs> she was on zoom you know and we would do some breathing exercises and i would do rereads um uh, and, and, and then I would just lose my voice too. You know, I don't have a super strong professional voice and my, my voice would just, you know, go after a couple of hours. So it took us many days in the studio. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, even just doing four hours of meeting, the voice starts to go doing the same line over and over again. It's like, what am I even saying? Is this, is this making yeah. sense at all? I've got, a, I got a couple of specific things I have to hit. Boyfriend number one, if you haven't listened to it, you'll know it when you hit it. If you <laughs> haven't, I'm going to leave it there. I don't want to talk about details because... I, that's not, I'm not interested. Rebecca's going to laugh at me after this. I, I, the, the willingness to be in it, right. Cause there, it's one thing when you're being interviewed for a book, right. That's hard enough. It's another thing to say, you can totally use my, my voice. Cause it's much more your personhood, right. Being put up. Was that easy? Was that simple? I, I can't imagine I'm too, I'm too much of a chicken to have asked. Like, was it easy for you? Did it like, what was, what was that experience like? Um, no, I mean, it was all complicated. Um, you know, I, I, it happened in the moment and it was kind of easy in the moment because I was taping him and I said, look, you know, 
this, this was, this was merely weeks after my marriage had exploded. I had no idea if it I was, was so early. That's what I, I remember that too. It feels so right. raw in the moment. I had no idea if I was making a podcast. I had yeah. no idea what I was doing, but I knew I was gathering tape with everyone. And I said, look, do you mind if I tape our, our first date and our first week together and our first night? And he's like, fine, tape whatever you want. Um, I mean, he was very, he, he is a very generous hearted, you know, warm, charismatic person. Um, and I also think he has a very large ego. I was going to say there was something else being served by his agreement to do it. I think. Yeah. I mean, I think he genuinely thought that um, he was helping me by seducing me and also helping me with my creative work by being on tape or willing to be taped. And, and, and our agreement was always that I would send him the transcripts. Right. I would send him the tape. He could approve or disapprove any, any pieces um, and then sign a release. And so, you know, some months later I did compile the transcripts and the tapes and I sent them to him and he said, sure, do whatever you want with them. Mm. I still didn't know sure. what I was doing with them, Sure, gotcha. but I, I knew that I did want his permission, um, to be able to do something. And yeah. I think, you know, in the end, I think he is worried about it. You know, he, he, um, didn't really know how he, he would be presented in the book. And his voice, even though I disguise everything about him, right, I don't disguise his voice. And so, um, you know, I think he, he's a little bit nervous about it. Yeah. Um, on the upside, I feel like he, like my ex-husband actually, <laughs> has sort of apologized. Now that he's read what he's read, he's like, oh, actually, I didn't know. And my ex-husband said this too, I didn't really know how hard this all was for you. And I'm sorry. Because there's tape that's not in there. And some of it, I mean, maybe stuff, if you knew what the audiobook experience was going to be like, like, damn, I didn't, I wish I had my recorder on for this or this would be curious, but your your kids aren't on tape. Your ex-husband's not on tape. Or is your is one of your kids on I tape? I think my right? daughter is briefly on tape, actually. Oh, okay. But it's, yeah. I, I don't think, I guess, not like Helen Fisher or Steve right. Cole, who become a character in the book in that way. Right, right. I mean, like... For me, I would put the whole thing in Morse code that never, no one could ever see. So I, you're not going, you're not going to get it from me. But like, after knowing what the the product turns into, is there tape you wish you would have included, or, you know, because you have to do one to know what's possible, I guess. And now that you know what's possible with an audiobook like this, is there anything I was like, damn it, I wish I would have had X or Y. Um, that's a great question. I think I would have, um, oh, I know there are a couple of things that I was like, oh, I wish I'd tape that. Yeah. I mean, one thing is, you know, I, I did tape some ambient sound of the wilderness mm. when right. I was on the river trip and I wish I had gotten more tape oh, of really? that. Okay. Yeah. Part of it is that, you know, I had this kind of expensive little task cam unit and I didn't want to just like pull it out of my canoe in the middle of a rapid, <laughs> but I do wish I'd gotten maybe a little bit more ambient sound, um, of that. Like, for example, there was this beaver at one point I, I had this encounter, um, with a beaver who slaps the water. Oh, okay. Was, I was like, what sound a is a beaver? Moment. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I was like, Oh, I wish I had that on tape. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. The one thing I wanted to ask is like, you know, I'm sure people are asking about what does your ex-husband think? I, I know all this stuff people ask and there's other interviews for that, but like yeah. outside of the questions people ask, what has the reaction been? I can only imagine that you know, as you say in the book, it's it's a banal tragedy. Everyone or a lot of people go through this in, from various vectors. So everyone has a story, including the scientists and researchers you talk to is a chance for them to talk about their personal experience too. It's like, what have people been coming? I mean, it's pandemics or whatever, but like, what has reader reaction been? What have you been found surprising or interesting about how people are, are talking to you about it? Well, it's such an intimate book. And I think people who read it 
um, feel a little bit emboldened to reach out and to want to be my friend and to, to share, to share their stories and to invite me to have coffee or even to go on a date in some cases. Oh God. No, Florence, <laughs> that's your follow-up book. It's better than Bumble. Just write a memoir. No, um, so, um, but I, it's been really sort of uniformly positive and that people who have reached out to say, thank you, because what I, what I did was a little bit different from sort of the typical heartbreak treatment and that I tried to kind of explain why it feels so crummy and why our bodies, you know, register this physical pain, why people get sick. And so a lot of people have reached out to me saying, thank you. Now I understand, you know, why I, you know, had the heart attack or why I couldn't get out of bed or, um, you know, various, um, I think they just feel kind of understood, yeah. you know, yeah, in a way. that idea of, you know, we think of heartbreak because it's like even weirdly sort of physiological descriptor, but also not at the same time. Cause as you say, it's like kind of your pancreas flooding your heart. When you talk about the heart attack sort of element to it, yeah. that doesn't look like other heart attacks. But we think of it as like a soul piece, not as a getting blood work done to see before and after. It's like, to my knowledge, I've never heard of that as being possible. And I think that's what's so exciting about this particular kind of genre is like taking the personal, seeing what the science looks like, having the experience of trying MDMA or a therapy or whatever else it might be, and then seeing, does this work writ large? And then it does it work for you? Because that's if it works for 78% of people, say, not 22% of people ain't going to work for does that mean it doesn't work right. well? Yes and no, kind of. And then what do you do? Right. And just the sort of mind-blowing concept that our white blood cells yeah. listen for loneliness. You know, it's such a radical concept um, and fascinating and disturbing because, yeah. you know, our immune systems are paying attention to our social state. And that's why there's an urgency to understand what's happening and to get better as soon as you can, because your health is really implicated and it has, you know, these continued implications for years ahead. I've nerded off enough about this. We're going to end the, the regular podcast part of this now. Thank you all so much for listening. I re remember to stick around past your normal, like music outro. You're going to hear the segment from Heartbreak. If you haven't listened to it, I can make no better recommendation just to listen to the actual thing for a few minutes. You can hear that for the Patreons. We're going to stay on for Florence for 10 minutes and talk about unrelated stuff, right? Just get some more geek out with Florence for a second. Thank you much, so much, Florence, for, for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. It's been really fun. All right. Now, as promised, an excerpt from Heartbreak. Just trying to get you to, to listen. Try it out. It's an exciting format in a book we really like. Uh, that's coming up next. Also, if you're so inclined, you can get 20% off Heartbreak. There's an offer code. Uh, use a link in the show notes. And if you're on the fence about being a Book Riot Patreon member, you can get access to Heartbreak for free using a link that you can find over there. In addition, we're going to drop some more talking with Florence in the feed over there next week. So check that out too. Let us know what you think of this experiment. We, we really had a good time and maybe we'll do this again. Maybe we won't. But if you really like it, let us know and we'll talk to you all soon. When I set out to try and understand the experience of Heartbreak, both my own and more generally, I recorded a lot of my journey as it was unfolding in real time. I'm recording <laughs> Oh, you are? Oh my God, you're really gonna do this? I don't know. Writing this book has been a deeply personal exploration for me, and I'm grateful you're choosing to listen. It may sound a little different from the audiobooks you're used to hearing, 
I'll be reading the text, but you'll also hear passages from my audio journal entries and sounds from trips I took in the wilderness. You'll hear conversations with friends. The only advice I have for you is that we are here for you, so don't do it alone. And scientists and experts who study heartbreak. Just because you've been dumped doesn't mean you don't, you just can stop attaching. In fact, the brain region that becomes active when you've been dumped, um, linked with pain, also becomes active when you have tooth pain. So <laughs> Why does very, that seem sort of appropriate? <laughs> so it's, it's a very painful um, experience, and it can last a long time. You'll even hear me in therapy. Yeah, just the whole universe of dating is much more dramatic than being in a 20-year marriage. I figured this is an audiobook. You might as well really hear it. The highs, the lows, the sometimes crooked path to a heart more whole. Here we go. I hope you enjoy it. My biggest problem at the moment was the portable toilet. It was just too heavy. It was weighing down the bow of my canoe, which was already loaded with 80 pounds of water and a double-walled cooler filled with fairly ridiculous items like coconut milk, ribeye steaks, and cage-free liquid whole eggs. Three blocks of ice, 10 days worth of water. Um... I have so much food. Like, why did I bring onions? That's me, night one, alone on the river, making an audio diary. Or really, more of an audio rant. Heavy food, huge cooler, takes up three quarters of the boat. I'd also brought a fetching beach parasol. It was just too much stuff. But the toilet seemed a particular rebuke. Why does something you shit in in the desert have to be made of ammunition-grade 20-millimeter steel? It doesn't. And the canoe was small. It just feels really heavy. Like, I can move it in a straight line, but if I had to make a move, if there were a rock coming, I mean, I could not move it. The ill-conceived toilet was just one of the many small and giant mistakes that led me to this moment, cursing alone in the wilderness. There were the mistakes in my marriage, the cosmic mistake, to my mind, of the divorce, the wrong men I'd fallen for in the year since my separation, the friendships I'd overburdened, all of these were, yes, weighing me down. If I thought about the heavy shit metaphors too long, my head hurt. Most recently, there was the poor decision, made because I was possibly having a hot flash, to launch this leg of my journey a day early at 7 p.m. in fading light just above a small rapid in a canoe that felt like it weighed a 1,000 pounds. Then again, it was August, and it was 97 degrees in Green River, Utah. Even a teenage boy would be having a hot flash. Camping at the Shadeless Town Park was an unbearable option. Running a desert river for a month in the height of summer was probably another bad decision. But here I was. An outfitter named Craig had rented me the 15-foot canoe with a broken thwart, splintering gunnels, and the tanker toilet. The boat was the color of lipstick you wear when you're trying too hard. It did, however, match the parasol. Craig dropped me off at the ramp. He laughed and said, just remember, if you don't know knots, make lots. 
He then snapped a picture of me surrounded by all my gear and drove off in his air-conditioned pickup. To be clear, I do know how to tie knots, and I generally know what I'm doing in the wilderness. But my own canoe lay upside down in Washington, D.C., where it petulantly awaited better days, and where until recently I also petulantly lay, often right side down, after my husband decided to leave our 25-year marriage, because, among other things, he said he needed to go find his soulmate. Near the midpoint of my trip, I was aiming for a campsite that my map said had trees. Because the tall cottonwoods are so rare in these canyons, they make camp easy to find. Paddling in, I noticed that across the river, a giant slab of rock had flaked off the tall cliff and landed in the shape of a perfect heart, mottled and fractured around the edges. Bird poop dribbled over the top, but it was solid and intact, flashing like a neon sign over the water. I was delighted no one else had claimed the spot. There weren't many groups on the river. I'd seen a few, including some Boy Scouts who passed me earlier. I set up my hammock, meditated, and read C.S. Lewis on grief, written after his wife died. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear, he wrote. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. If I couldn't find some measure of stillness here, I'd never find it. At this modeled heart camp, I was beginning to inhabit the quiet. The heat and the silence, the weight of ancient rock, the very slow river. I was stripped of disguises, clean as a bone. There was no place to hide from my memories. Why was it so hard to confront my marriage? That evening, per a friend's suggestion, I wrote my ex a goodbye letter. Last time I tried doing this in December, I just like sobbed the whole time. But now it's coming more easily. I thanked him for the many things I'd learned with him and the things we shared and the good ways we'd loved. I wrote about the ways I felt hurt and apologized for the things I'd done wrong. I wasn't going to read this out loud, but... I thought I might as well put it on tape. What I apologize for is not being better at taking care of myself and my moods and not being more open about my fears and needs. Then, sitting on a rock outcrop high above the river, I burned it in a frying pan, a marriage crisping like a slice of bacon. Walk down to the river. Goodbye. Crying, I cast the smoldering ash into the current. One blackened scrap flitted back to me. It contained just one word. Sweet. I found myself resisting saying goodbye to the marriage. To him. To the life I'd enjoyed. I opened a notebook. I made a list of all the things I loved about him. And then I wrote down all the things I didn't love about him. What I admired, his apparent ease, his sunniness, his competence, his enthusiasm for adventure. I loved our family unit, that these kind, tall, lanky humans were all my people. 
And I love the happy delusion, such a delusion, that we were surrounded by a special force field of safety and fine weather. What I didn't admire. I won't enumerate his many failings here, except to say the biggest, the one I didn't miss at all, was his ability to make me feel that I wasn't quite worthy of him. That was bad enough, but the bigger problem was that I had started believing it. And as long as I still believed it, the worse my life looked alone. 